Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is made possible with the support of Hotel Connections, the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. Hotelconnections.com. Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. On this November 11th, he's a veteran of the airline industry. He's Ben Baldanza, former CEO of Spirit Airlines, who now teaches about how airlines work. And hey, happy Veterans Day to all the Absolutely. (laughs) And he's now insisting that airline demand recovery builds back better. He's NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Well, pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. And by the way, Ben, I'm sure you, like I, have veterans in in your family. I know my my maternal grandfather was. during World War II, in his case, he was never deployed because he was injured on base in this country. But I have great uncles, you know, brothers of my grandparents who uh, absolutely. My my father was a twenty year Navy man. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. Well, wow, twenty years. So he retired. So he just full career retired. Yeah. And he, and then he had a civil career after he retired. And so most of my life, I was born like the year he retired from the service. And so I knew him mostly of his civil career, but I benefited from being able to use sort of military base privileges while I was a dependent. No, that's that's fantastic. Well, I remember talking on an early show about where you were born, right? And that 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 was right. I think not in Rome, but in right. It was was that related to? Am I am I remembering correctly? The hospital you were born at was that related to his military service? Yes, or? it was on the Griffiths Air Force Base Hospital. That's exactly right. There you go. Well, today with the presidential race decided, well, according to most people anyway, uh, what does the outcome mean to the airline industry? Plus, we're going to keep it mediocre. Yeah, well, according to one listener, at least. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with the week's news. Yeah, lots of mediocrity here. Ben, uh, you might have heard there was this little election last week. What was it? Maybe, I don't know, student council in your son Enzo's school. Oh, wait. Wait, wait. No, that's right. The United States elected a new president, or at least that's what most people seem to think. We'll leave that discussion for another podcast. But for now... Let's just say the guy who won by almost 5 million popular votes and seems to have gotten 306 electoral votes will indeed be the next president, just for purposes of discussion. I want to talk about what that means for airlines. And obviously, we could go a lot of different directions with this. But I'm thinking global travel, right? Just kind of the climate in the world once we move past COVID. I'm thinking taxes, regulations, Let's start uh, sort of roll those all in together. And, you know, it has struck me over the past few years that and I could give you examples. And and again, just sort of for for the purposes of discussion without splitting hairs, I would say and tell me if if, if this is a an accurate read that if anything, if we think about the big four U.S. airlines, CEOs tend to try to stay apolitical, you know, not really get into it. I mean, they have lots of stakeholders. They have unions that tend to align themselves align themselves with with uh, with democrats they have shareholders and other business groups which have tended at least historically to align themselves with republicans they tend not to just come out and, and make hi- highly political statements that said 
I think it's fair to say that the CEOs of the big three, global airlines, American United Delta, at times have expressed at least some discomfort with some of what has happened in, in the past several years uh, in, in terms of just sort of the global climate and, and uh, so forth. And that Gary Kelly of Southwest has, again, subtly, but I think clearly, been a little bit more supportive of the administration. Do you agree with that, Ben? And whether or not you do, just as a basis for discussion, is it fair to say that that's, that, as the old saying goes, where you stand depends on where you sit, and Southwest being a nearly all-domestic airline just doesn't have to care as much about what the rest of the world thinks about America, about trade wars and all of the rest of it as the big three. Does that make sense? Or, or am I, I, I reading too much into it? I think that makes some sense. I, I do think that makes some sense. I think your characterization is right too. But I think the, the most correct characterization is that they're more apolitical than anything. And the statements that have been made or comments that have been made that suggest things that are positive or negative based on the administration are usually done, you know, in some out of context things, not in a formal speech or things like that. Right. Um, And so I think, Seth, you missed the major thing that a Joe Biden presidency means. Doesn't it mean that all airplanes are going to be replaced by Amtrak? (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely, it's right, Ben. We've got a, we've got a, a rail fan in the uh, it, 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 apparently about to enter the White House. And, and I mean, in all seriousness, in subtle ways. And again, this is you know, I, I, I don't know what this will add up to, but yeah, no support for rail and just public transportation in general. I mean, in this case, we're talking about intercity rail, uh, not urban rail, which is, is of little consequence to airlines. But sure, in some way, right, that could, uh, with, with all the talk about that, that, that could move forward. Uh, I, I don't think it's something that probably keeps airlines up all night, but but there are, hey, there that's are, markets, right. there are markets where that could matter. <laughs> Very true. You got me, Ben. Um, and yeah, and, and just in terms of the rest of it, how, how, how does this all net out? Well, I can, I can see a couple things that I think are likely. I mean, of course, you know, I can't predict the future any better than anyone else. And I have no inside knowledge into what Joe Biden or people he'll pick for his cabinet think. Um, but I can see a couple things that are probably likely. I mean, I, I expect there's much more likelihood that there will be a big infrastructure bill soon. And that could help airports. That could help air traffic control, right? And that could make it maybe possible for more competition at airports by having more capacity over time. I'm not saying those things happen overnight, but if we if we say we're going to repair infrastructure in the company, that's not only highways and rail and ports. It's in the country. And, just forgot you said in the company. In the country. Yeah. I meant the country. Yeah. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And um, I then the, on the negative side, I could see. Well, this is going to sound terrible to say it's negative, but I could see pressure to increase minimum wages at a national level could put pressure on local costs. I think that could have more of an effect in smaller cities that make it a little more expensive for airlines to serve them. And that could pressure some sort of services there. I don't think it would make any change to the big markets in the U.S. and what that means, because most of the people that work for airlines are paid you know, above minimum wage anyway. And that just basically comes down to the broader economic argument about minimum wage, right? That when you raise minimum wage, it's good for the people who who get a bump, right? Who who still get to work and get paid that that higher wage. 
less good for people who the places around the world where McDonald's has just automated more because, right, they just put up a kiosk instead of having a cashier because just the balance tip toward doing that. And and I guess it's, it's not so airline specific, but yes, there would be places where if the service is marginal anyway, where that could tip the balance and and make it uh, uh, instead of being marginally affordable to do whatever they do, even if it's outsourcing to to uh, to somebody local. If, if all of a sudden that contract becomes more expensive because of wages going up, then yeah. yeah. And and in the Barack Obama presidency, the Department of Transportation was more aggressive in sort of the consumer advocacy world. Definitely. Things like the tarmac delay rule, for example, and the full fare rule, and things like that. That the industry you know, brought on itself through actions that happened, of course. But over the last four years, the Department of Transportation has been very quiet in consumer advocacy. So I wonder if in a Biden world, maybe whether it's Elaine Chow, he keeps Elaine Chow for... I want to add, that's next on my list. I want to talk about that in a minute, but yeah, but but go continue with this thought. Or whether he picks someone new, whether they whether they may feel a little more emboldened toward, well, maybe we're, we have a more regulation-friendly president again, so maybe it's the time to put more controls around ancillary fees or seating on planes or things. And I'm not saying – I'm sure the industry would push back against a lot of that, but it's certainly more likely, I think, in a Biden world than in a Trump world. There had been a tradition – a lot of things have sort of gone out the window in, in, in recent years – but there had been a tradition of – Presidents picking somebody from the other party to serve in one cabinet position. And DOT, Department of Transportation, was a place where that often happened. If we think about the previous two administrations, Ray LaHood, Republican, served during Obama's first term as Secretary of Transportation. Right. And Norman Mineta, a Democrat, served, I think, for most of, if I recall correctly, uh, the the George W. Bush administration. I, I think toward the end, he was replaced by Mary Peters, uh, a, a Republican. So you mentioned the Elaine Chow. She's interesting because not only is she a Republican who, of course, served under Republican President Donald Trump, but she's also the wife of the Senate majority leader. <laughs> That's right. With with the Senate, I mean, as of now remaining in, in Republican hands, there are those two Senate races uh, to be yet to be determined in Georgia, runoffs coming in January. But, but let's just say uh, Mitch McConnell remains the Senate majority leader. Is there some deal to be had? <laughs> you know, like, does, does that, does that, I'm, I'm not even talking about the nepotism. I'm just talking about the, 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 the you know, Republicans, Secretary of Transportation, who, yeah, happens to be uh, the majority leader's wife, uh, with everybody, I, I, I think, uh, hoping for sort of the climate to, to change somewhat in Washington and with everybody having their agenda, does that does that become a, a, a bargaining chip for for both sides, for Biden and, and McConnell? Uh, you know, is, is there something Biden could get from a, a Republican-controlled Senate, if in fact it's what it remains, by leaving Elaine Chao as Secretary of Transportation. Yeah, you know, that's certainly possible. I think, and while while the president-elect certainly has the right to pick his cabinet and who he wants, it you could almost see because of the fact that Elaine Chao is Mitch McConnell's wife that 
if he decided to put someone new there, you can't ignore the fact that he sort of fired the, what may be the majority leader's wife from her role. Right. And my guess is Joe Biden and his administration are going to be very sensitive to that idea and will certainly socialize ideas around that, of course. And, and, and broadly speaking, am, am I correct in, in saying that she's been fairly uncontroversial, right? I mean, a, 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 I mean, a lot has happened under, we think about the max crashes and all the rest of it that, that just the country's had to deal with. But, 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 but I, I, don't think I'd go too far out on a limb to say that that if he's going to have a Republican in his cabinet, which you would think, I mean, given the kinds of things he's been saying in terms of just reaching out, he, he would want to that that it just kind of why not her <laughs> because well, she's there anyway. Well, I, mean, I think that's right. I don't I don't think there are many people who would who I've heard say all the any negative things she's done the the only to the extent i've heard any negative commentary about her and i've not heard much it's been around maybe she hasn't done enough right she's been quiet and as you know seth there are cabinet members this isn't a political show and i'm not trying to be you know make a political commentary here though there are cabinet members who have very closely aligned themselves with president trump and there are those who just did their job and she's more of the type who just did her job so it's, it would almost be easy, I think, for her to stay in that role and work for President Biden yeah. if he wants that to happen, because it's not like she she was seen as one of these yeah. really strong allegiance to President Trump kind of appointments. That's a good point. Well, we have our first listener question, or actually it's more like an attack. But first, we want to thank Seabury Capital. Seabury Capital is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, maritime and financial services and technologies. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in the industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y, capital.com. Okay, we heard again from our old friend John of Cincinnati. It's a little bit long, but stick with this. It gets good. John says, enjoyed the discussion about slots and physical versus regulatory airport access, but what kind of loyal listener would I be if I didn't provide you some material for your new segment, Prove Ben Wrong? I'm sure you have plenty of material for this segment already, so maybe just select one of the two below. He quotes you saying, there is no law requiring airports to provide access to an airline. Actually, I am aware of two. Uh, the FAA AIP grant funding apply to all airports that have accepted a, a FAA funding, uh, which is all commercial airports. Uh, they require economic non-discrimination. Uh, so in the 1990s era of uh, concern about fortress hubs and unfair competition and high fares, Congress came up with number two, the 2000 Aviation Investment Reform Act called Air 21. Uh, Section 155, which requires commercial airports to submit a competition plan to the FAA if one or two airlines handle more than 50% of total employments. And then basically there are you know, consequences if, if they uh, if they don't do the right thing. So uh, this is John, John again here saying, so airports must show they have available gates for new entrants. Quote, 
Quoting you again here, Ben. There are no new airline gates in new leases anymore. They're all common or preferential use now. This is John talking again. So the gates in Delta's new $3 billion terminal at LaGuardia can be used by other carriers? Keep it mediocre. John. Actually, John, I'll take the last part first. I would direct you to the amended lease between the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey and Delta Airlines. This is uh, September 13th, 2017. It's 228 exhilarating pages, just the lease alone, plus exhibits. Uh, You can read that on your own, but I will direct you to Section 8, Subsection K, uh, which grants the ability to Delta to have the gates and to sublease them if it wants, quote, provided that the lessee shall have preferential and not exclusive use of all gates in the new terminal facilities and any airline subleases entered into with respect to the new terminal facilities shall not reflect exclusive use, unquote. So yes, John, actually, uh, it, it is the case that in that gleaming Delta terminal, those are indeed preferential gates. And to quote uh, Jim Cramer, booyah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Now that doesn't mean anybody else is ever going to use the gates, but it, but but it, but but it means they are. Like what what Ben said is exactly the case. Delta can't just you know squat on all of the real estate and do nothing with it and and not allow other people to uh, to use it and there would be all kinds of details when it comes to that but they would basically have to if they're if they're not again you'd have to there's a lot more detail here but uh and, and and likely an exemption right now this is me guessing but in the COVID era there are all kinds of exemptions when it comes to slots and all the rest of it where uh airlines get to hold on to things that they normally wouldn't get on get to hold on to without using them because everybody's using less. I don't know whether it's the case there. I'm just saying that there's a possibility right now that that would be the case. But yes, they well, are and while and so while no, no mediocrity there, there are no, <laughs> there are no more exclusive new exclusive gates in this country that uh, uh, that either of us are aware of, and that is certainly not an exception. And while the booyah was a little obnoxious, I'm sorry about that, John. I actually appreciate the fact that you corrected me on the AIP grants and the Air 21. I will also say, however, that if you just look at what's actually happened, it's become very difficult for carriers to get access to major U.S. airports. Um, At one point, Southwest bought AirTran, for example, and AirTran at one point in their history, operated almost 20% of the flights out of Atlanta airport. And a few years after that, Southwest got a lot smaller in Atlanta. And in that process, they turned over a lot of gates back to the airport. And lo and behold, most of them went to Delta. Yeah, It's not that all of those gates were put out by the Atlanta airport to say, okay, Southwest is leaving. Let's invite Spirit, Frontier, Allegiant, American, Emirates, all these other people, let's get them all in this airport to compete with Delta, right? That didn't happen either. So if you look at what's happened, if you're David Neoman and you want to start a new airline in the United States, good luck trying to get critical mass facility in Chicago, in LA, in Atlanta, in Miami, in New York City. It's really tough. Yeah. 
as we say, uh, a real estate business, right? People think of it, you, you picture airplanes are flying in the sky. Yes, those are very flexible assets. You can fly wherever you want. But on the ground, uh, very much a, a real estate game. John's not wrong about that, obviously. And you could say it's a distinction without a difference in some cases, right? Because as long as Delta utilizes those gates, then in practice, it's using them all the time. And you could say it's using them exclusively, but uh, they they are indeed preferential uh, and Delta would have to follow the rules and, and under the right circumstances, allow its competitors to use those gates. Well, lemons from lemonade. We all know about the COVID-related risks. What about the new opportunities in the airline and broader travel industry? Opportunities with COVID? Yeah, there's some of them. More Airlines Confidential is next. Hotel Connections is the global leader in crew logistics and accommodations. They're a Fortune 1000 company that makes travel management easier and less expensive with their AI-powered booking applications, intelligent learning algorithms, customizable rules engines, analytics, global negotiated rate programs, all of it for travel, logistics, hotels, transport, and technology solutions. Visit hotelconnections.com. That's hotelconnections.com. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Back to the mailbag now. Yoni from Chicago writes, what opportunities do you see from established companies or an outsider uh, as the travel industry rebuilds post-COVID? As leisure travel moves away from big cities to large rural recreation areas, ski towns, national parks, etc., what opportunities do you see? Do you see airlines building closer relationships with ski resorts? Or even the National Park Service, Ben. I know there's been commentary at Denver for one is is uh, is is a hot market that's been uh, good for the airlines there. United Southwest, especially Frontier, just because Denver is a much bigger part of what they do. Uh, any thoughts about that? Maybe underappreciated opportunities. I think that's sort of been reported, right? People are people want to be outside right now, uh, and who knows how long all this will last, right? At some point, hopefully, there's a vaccine and and people can go back to some of the things they, they enjoyed in the past, but that's not happening today or, today or tomorrow. Is there anything we're missing uh, opportunities for airlines and, and for the broader travel industry? Well, I think it's a great question from Yoni, and it, it points out just a reality of demand right now that even if you're willing to get on an airplane right now, where are you going to go? Right? There has to be places to go. And so that's one of the real things holding back airline demand right now is that, you know, your business isn't sending you out to go to work. And do you really want to, even if you're willing to put your family on an airplane, what is, what's it going to be like when you get to an Orlando or a New York City or something like that, right? So these outdoor areas do look better. Let me tell you a story, Seth, from very early in my career when I worked at American Airlines. At one point, we were, we meaning American at the time, were approached by a group of ski resorts who basically pitched that they decided they were going to stop competing with each other for a little while in an attempt to grow the market for everyone. And they talked to American about putting together a pass that customers could buy that they could go to any ski location. 
So, you know, you buy this and you could get three ski trips in the year and you could go to Gunnison or you could go to Steamboat or you could go to Vail or you could go to Denver. You know, you pick where you want to go, but the password lets you go to any place you're going to go to ski. And that was pretty innovative. That was, you know, a long time ago. So the point is, I think airlines would be willing to work with the right kind of people. And I love the idea of sort of a partnership in some sense with the National Park Service. I don't know that airlines have thought about that, but I think that's a great idea, actually. This country has beautiful national parks, and many of them are nicely accessible with airports. Try to go to Glacier National Park and not fly into Kalispell. You're going to have a very long drive, right? and you want to go to Big Bend National Park, well, it's still a drive, but you got to get yourself to Midland or maybe a little plane to Alpine, right? I mean, and and yet these are beautiful places. So maybe this is an opportunity for the industry to say, let's figure out ways we can get people outdoors before they're ready to go back to New York City and Chicago for fun. Don't mean to rain on your parade, but I visited Glacier Bend. I took the Empire Builder on Amtrak from Dina, <laughs> and I took it from Portland. It's overnight. It gets gets to the next morning. Had had a nice day. There's back in 2009, and then we took yeah. it overnight from there to Minneapolis. Uh, you ran into Whitefish, right? Yeah, it's Whitefish, exactly. And it was and it was great, but it was not fast. <laughs> no, absolutely. Actually, shout out to to my friend Bill from DC who visited. He was in our area up here in in Midstate Pennsylvania. We saw him over the weekend. He's uh, he he made exactly that point. He said, "You know, I I, I had some time. I want to see places, but." just sort of limited to to what I can do, uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of people are facing that. It's not that everybody who's not traveling is afraid to go anywhere. And he's a careful guy, you know, the mask, the whole thing. Um, but his feelings need to be sure I'm, 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 I'm willing to, to, to travel, uh, but it's, it's just uh, a, a question of finding places that are fun to be right now. Well, uh, do you have a question for us? You can call us. Uh, 305-379-7429 and record a question. We'll play it on the air. You can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. Finer wine is next, but first we want to thank Clear. Travel with confidence with Clear. Touchless, fast, safer airport travel. Clear's touchless identity verification is available in 34 airports nationwide, moving you quickly and without crowds through airport security. Enroll today at www.clearme.com slash airlines. That's www.clearme.com slash airlines. Well, beginning our initial descent on today's show, it's time for fine or why we listen to an actual customer complaint. And then we talk about whether a complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Yes, Seth Anthony of Fort Lauderdale, my former hometown, is complaining about Southwest. Anthony writes, we upgraded our boarding passes for $40 to A, I assume he means zone A, boarding zone A, so we could sit together. Keep in mind that our tickets were already $450 each, which is high for Fort Lauderdale to Rochester, New York. Our original had me boarding in B and my husband in zone C. Really? 
Then we board and some jerk who was late with a pre-boarding pass complained where we were sat because we were A and did not have a pre-boarding pass. The airline allowed us on and then called general boarding. The crew member basically sided with the jerk and had a terrible personality, never smiling once. I assume she means the crew member and not the jerk. (laughs) Made made us feel like we did something wrong last time we fly Southwest. Ben, on Southwest, a boarding pass is not a seat assignment. It's a hunting permit. And (laughs) that's true even if you have priority boarding. What – Who's right here? Fine or 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 why? I think I think this is fine. I'm going to side with Anthony on this one, and I think some of it goes to Southwest boarding process and the fact that they fly so many through flights. I remember one time, Seth, when I was flying on Southwest, and I had boarding pass A two. Right, so I'm going to be the second person on the airplane. And wait, and let me before before you say anything else, let me ask you: Where were you boarding? Where what airport? Um, it was in Fort Lauderdale, actually. <laughs> oh wow! So so this is a plane that, ha- and it's interesting because Fort Lauderdale is more often sort of the beginning of the line, but a plane can come in from Tampa and then go back out from Fort Lauderdale to other places. And there, so how many when people? When I got on the plane, and a third of the seats were full. <laughs> yeah, there sure. were people sitting sure. on that plane. You know, because they were on the plane when it landed and they didn't get off. So that A boarding pass is deceiving in the sense that if you pay for it, you get sort of the expectation, I'll get to sit where I want. But that doesn't always happen. And so I understand what Anthony was seeing. He was probably, you know, $450 is a lot to pay for an airline trip that's all on the East Coast, at least. right? And, And so he's... He's thinking that, you know, I paid the 450, then I pay an extra 40 bucks, and they still tell me to get out of my seat because somebody who was on the plane when they arrived had preference over to me. I can understand why he's frustrated. Yeah. I think it's one of the challenges of what is otherwise a very good airline in Southwest that they have this very um, open boarding process where they have no assigned seats. And if you if you get your boarding pass sooner, you get a higher number. If you pay them a little money, you get a higher number and maybe get a little control over your life as to whether you sit in an aisle or window or front of the back of the plane. But it doesn't always work that way because of all the through flighting Southwest does. So I think Anthony's got a good point. If he paid them $40 to board early, he should have been able to sit where there were open seats and not have somebody who had gotten off the plane but been given this pre-boarding pass. Yeah. You know, that it, you it's, only it's, get that pass on Southwest when, you, when you're when you on the plane coming in and you say, I'm going to get off to go, you know, get myself a Chick-fil-A or something, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they give you that pass. And so you sort of claim you kept your seat. But that's a little odd to me. So I'm with Anthony on this. Am I wrong, you, Seth? Yeah, you may be hungry just now, by the way. But, uh, but yeah, no, <laughs> it, it's, it's, yeah, it, it, right. It's just a better board. Uh, it's just a better hunting permit, right? <laughs> right. The, the, uh, the A boarding pass. And, I think a couple things. Number one, Southwest, ha- with a lot of what they do, there's kind of a split between their sort of core entrenched historical markets where everybody knows how it works, right? In Albuquerque or somewhere like that, where this is how people have been flying their whole lives. There are people probably rarely flown anything except Southwest and these other markets where Fort Lauderdale, Southwest is not a small airline, but it's still, I, I, I mean, I don't know whether it's. of the market there, um, something like that. 
so you know it, it, it's it's a relatively small player even though it is uh, a giant domestic airline and and a lot of people still fly southwest very much and so so i can understand somebody seeing the offer for priority boring and thinking that sounds great and not really understanding uh what it means so in the most technical sense sure southwest is right right and it's it's going to be in the fine print somewhere they're going to tell you that it's not a it's not guaranteed except that you're going to board before other people um but yeah you you can't can't blame it and and this is one of those things i've i've we've talked over i think we asked a few weeks back, what would they sort of relent on first? What would they, uh, you know, between the the bag fees, the this, and uh, the other thing I asked you about was uh, was online travel agency distribution, Expedia, and, and so forth. They're not in there. They don't assign seats, and they don't charge for bags. There's, there's kind of three of the big things that were there different from everybody else in the U.S. and and many airlines around the world. Uh, look, I have to say with the seat assignments, and they'll tell you, hey, our core fans love it, the open seating, but every airline around the world that is that I'm aware of that has dabbled in assigning seats after pre- previously having open seating has quickly gone all the way. Like, in other words, they realized, oh my goodness, this was an opportunity for the airline in terms of revenue, because the bottom line is you're just going to get, if you can promise somebody exactly the seat they want, they're going to value that more than the better hunting permit overall. Uh, And, and then customers just seem to like that. So Ryanair comes to mind. EasyJet comes to mind. Both of those in Europe too, that were famously open seating airline. They dabbled. I think Ryanair first started offering like the first three rows or something for, for a fee. And just before you knew it, they went all the way with uh, with seat assignments. So you just kind of wonder. I know Southwest has played around over the years with different. They've kind of piloted different different ways of doing it. And they've never gone along again. I'll say it like like I always say it. Disclaimer: Southwest, extraordinarily successful airline, been around for a half century, been right a lot more than it's been wrong. But uh, this is one that I yeah I also just don't know about from the airline's perspective. And Seth, let me let me make another point here that I hadn't thought of, you know, that much. But I think in sort of a post-COVID world, what the Europeans call allocated seating, right? Or yep. seat assignments. Yep. Exactly. Um, also sort of helps in the following sense that if I know that I'm seated in seats 5A and B, my urgency to be pushing to get on the plane quickly or to get up to the gate or to crowd with others is lessened, right? Because I know those are my seats, whether I board early or whether I board late. And yes, there's the issue about where do I put my bag and I want space in the overhead bin and things like that. But in a world where certainly right now you don't want crowding at the gate and you want lots of separation, but I think probably in the future, people are going to be more comfortable with that. I could see seat assignments actually helping with that. Versus an open seating where there's some pressure of I've got to be really up close so I get on and get the seat that I really want. That's a great point. I mean, my feeling even before COVID was always, and I've never paid for the for the uh, uh, the priority boarding. With I don't think I've ever paid for priority boarding on on any airline, like on an open seating airline. Right, I've paid for like better seats and stuff at at various times, but uh, better assigned seats. But I don't think I've ever paid for priority boarding. And and my thing with Southwest is always I don't want to get to board first 
I want to be able to board last and know what seat I have, right? And have, yeah, have a good seat because sometimes you're at the gate and let's say you're on your laptop and you're just really comfortable, right? You're, you're in a good rhythm with work and you, you know, on, on other airlines, I've, okay, fine. Let everybody board. I know where I'm sitting. I don't, I'll be on the plane for a long time. I'm happy to wait, you know, and um, regardless of where I'm sitting and with Southwest, exactly. You have that, you feel like you have to board. Uh, and- well, and not only that you have to board, but that their process sort of encourages you to stand close to each other with number nine behind number eight. Exactly. And, and, and I will up. say, and in, and in fairness, Sam, one, one of the few flights I've been on since COVID started, I mean, I can tell you one of exactly three segments I've been on since COVID started was on Southwest. And I will say this, they did a great job. They did space people out. They didn't do the regular thing. It was like 10 at a time. So, so kudos to the airline for the policy and to the people at that was actually Reagan national uh, who, who do, who did a great job. So in fairness to them, they've, they have adapted, but another related thing is now also families traveling together. Right. So, uh, you know, I've uh, flown with my family, let's say on spirit where, you know, and not paid at time for seat assignments and thought, okay, well, they'll, they'll likely seat us together when they hand out the seats. And if they don't, whatever, uh, we'll probably be able to trade. And if we can't find it's a two hour flight or whatever, we'll sit next to a stranger, but in a COVID world, certainly. And even in a post COVID world, I, I kind of care a little bit more about sitting the three of us together. Right. And again, this goes back to, I think we talked about it last week or in a recent episode, just who wants to even catch a cold, right? right. <laughs> like, so you kind of want to be with what we all now call our sort of fam family bubble unit, you know, that sort of thing. I kind of really want to say X to my family. So there too, I would value knowing that we're sitting together, the three of us in our case, any three seats over just the uncertainty. And and so there too, that does it. And I know you're a lot more likely, look, if you have an A boarding pass to be clear, you're probably going to be able to sit together on Southwest, right? Usually the whole plane is not full. Uh, Midway, Chicago Midway might be an exception. Baltimore might, might be an exception. A couple of those sort of really big, what are essentially hubs generally you, you would be able to sit together, but yeah, I, I agree. If anything, um, I, it, it, it just kind of works less for me now. And uh, back to the old caveat, great airline, love them <laughs> in a lot of ways. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, not, not in that way. Well, on final approach. Now that does it for airlines confidential this week, please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions. And remember, We'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com or you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Seth Kaplan. And I'm Ben Baldanza. Talk to you soon. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.